Good morning. I began a teaching series a week ago, and I've entitled it Praying Dangerous Prayers. And I want to clarify a little bit of what I mean by that, because I don't want to leave you with the idea that that I'm talking about praying for dangerous things necessarily. Um, What I mean by, by the phrase, praying dangerous prayers, it goes back to um, that well-quoted, oft-quoted scene from the Chronicles of Narnia when one of the children hearing the stories of Aslan the lion, she says, oh my goodness, a lion, is he safe? And the answer is, of course he's not safe, but he is good. Praying dangerous prayers speaks to the fact that prayer in itself is a dangerous activity because what you are doing when you pray is you are inviting a dangerous God into your situation. And that is always something of fearsomeness, to have access to this God who is uh, a blazing fire, and to invite him into your circumstance or the situation that is on your mind. So prayer, by definition, is a dangerous activity. But it is also dangerous because inviting that dangerous God into your situation always has dangerous implications for you. Because he doesn't ever show up and do things in a tidy way as we would like. He always changes everything involved in the process, meaning us. And so prayer is inherently dangerous. We have a lion who is good, but never safe. And when we pray, we call that lion into our circumstance. This Sunday across evangelical circles is a Sunday designated for sanctity of human life. It's a Sunday generally close to the the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision from the early 70s. This year, we observe the 51st anniversary of uh, of that Supreme Court decision. And it's interesting because I've run across in in the pastor's pages on on social media and things, I I ran across somebody the other day who confessed confusion. He said, why are we still doing Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? I mean, Roe has been set aside. You see, the goal of the pro-life movement is not merely the setting aside of Roe versus Wade. It is the elimination of abortion in our land. And so I, I, I ran across some things. I wasn't even really looking. These are just, in, in the course of, of what I do, the media that I, that I check, the, the things that I do to prepare for truth currents, I, I, let, me, let me give you some things that you maybe didn't see this week in the news related to this issue of the sanctity of human life. 
Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris this week launched what she is calling a nationwide reproductive freedoms tour. It is uh, marking the 51st anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, and it is it is the belief of of this uh, of the the ruling party right now that abortion is a winning strategy in the in the general elections this fall. In her opening speech, she described those who oppose abortion. In her statement, she called us extremists who wage a full-on attack against hard-won, hard-fought freedoms. She's talking about me. I'm fine with that. The Biden campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, speaking after the vice president at the start of this, uh, this tour, put it very straightforwardly. A vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is a vote to restore Roe. Well, that settles it for me. At the same time that Kamala Harris was drawing the press in one direction, the Biden Department of Health and Human Services last week rolled back previous protections that had been in place for medical professionals who refused to perform abortions gender transition surgeries, and other medical procedures that conflict with their religious beliefs. A rule that's been in place since 2019 uh, would remove federal funding for hospitals and health facilities that required workers to provide services that violated their consciences. That rule is now rescinded. And the current administration, according to one critic, has effectively declared open season on people of faith who dissent especially in the medical field. Then one of the interesting things that we've seen since the overturning of Roe is the fact that while abortion has been outlawed in some states, other states have chosen to make abortion a tourist destination. Pennsylvania is one of those states. They issued a report from the Pennsylvania Department of Health last week celebrating the fact that uh, that they their number of abortions performed in the state of Pennsylvania increased by a, more than 5% between 2021 and 2023, the highest number of annual abortions in that state in the last 10 years. They're celebrating because that represents an increase in the number of women traveling from neighboring pro-life states to get abortions. Abortion is legal in Pennsylvania until 24 weeks. Now, while they're celebrating the fact that the number of abortions is up, if you go deep into that report, the part that the press didn't highlight is that this Pennsylvania Department of Health report shows that from 2017 to 2022, um, abortion complications, that's a nifty little phrase, abortion complications have increased in the state of Pennsylvania by more than 75%. In other words, while they're celebrating the increase in abortions, what they're, what they're not telling us is that half of the state's abortion facilities failed health inspections last year for practices such as not confirming the credentials of their abortion doctors and failing to sanitize their surgical instruments. 
We've heard the lie for 50 years that if abortion is not legal, women will die having back alley abortions. I'm here to tell you, women are dying in unsanitary abortion clinics. There's a full page ad in a newspaper that I have here. It's published by the Freedom, for, Freedom From Religion Foundation. Big letters, it says, what does the Bible really say about abortion? And then they proceed to give nine very improperly interpreted Scripture references to then finish with this sentence. This is their conclusion. It's clear the Bible shows an utter disregard for human life. The quote comes from Margaret Sanger, whose life motto, by the way, you might not know this, her life motto was, no gods, no masters. Well, as we look at this sermon series on praying dangerous prayers, I've entitled today's lesson, Praying for Our Enemies. And, and I have to confess up front that I am, um, I'm going to tell you some stories from, from the book of Acts, and um, it deeply convicts me because I am not there. This is not a sermon where I'm telling you um, that I have all this together and that you should be like me. You should not be like me. When it comes to praying for our enemies, that is people who who worship at the altar of child sacrifice, those who practice the sexualization of our smallest children, those who publicly um, put sexual depravity on display in celebration, those who promote the injustice of, 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 of prioritizing sexual convenience over the life of children. See, when I think about those kinds of people, I find myself standing squarely with, with Peter and John saying, Lord, can we just call down some fire? Can we just bring judgment right now? But you see, I have to preach not just the passages that I have figured out and, and, and I'm working at in my life. I have to preach the ones that I don't have figured out yet. I mean, not figured out, but, but not not sufficiently applied in my life. And so I want to begin this series talking about praying for our enemies. And, and the most extraordinary example, other than Jesus himself on the cross, we find in Acts chapter 7 with, um, with one of my favorite New Testament characters, a man by the name of Stephen. In, in, in Acts chapter 6, uh, well, actually in Acts chapter 1, we, the book of Acts is one of my favorite books, and maybe that's just the fact that I'm, I'm a historian by, by nature. But in Acts chapter 1, you have a group of believers who are frightened, they are confused, they're not sure, they know Jesus is alive, but they don't know what comes next, and they have gathered themselves in Jerusalem waiting for a power, a help that Jesus had promised, but, but they're uncertain about how that's going to unfold, what that's going to be, and so they keep a low profile because they're not yet ready to, to do what they don't know to do. From Acts chapter 1, that confused and, and uncertain 
gathering of believers until we get to Acts chapter 7 where we see the first recorded martyr of the Christian faith. And what happens is it moved quickly from, from that group in chapter 1 to the martyrdom of, of chapter 7. And what seems like a defeat in chapter 7, as it turns out, as the story continues to unfold, it was really uh, not only the, the start of something extraordinary, but it was almost as if that martyrdom was sort of the goal from the beginning. I mean, not that Christians would would die, but that they would put on display both by their life and by their death what it means to follow Jesus without reservation. And so in this story of Stephen, we have an example of someone who not only lived well, but he died well. And in this death, he gives us something extraordinary. He gives us a testimony that serves as a model for for serious Christian commitment, but the prayer that he's going to pray in these verses compels us to take seriously our status as outsiders in the world. We've got to get over trying to fit in and be liked. They're never going to like us. They're never going to accept us because they can't abide the value, the truth that God has placed in us by His Spirit. And so we have to figure out how to advance the kingdom, not only by our lives, but also, if necessary, by our death. I want us to look at here, here at the life of Stephen. Stephen shows up for the first time in Acts chapter 6, where he is selected to be one of the deacons. The, the disciples were busy with what they called the ministry of prayer and the word. But as the church exploded in membership, it grew so rapidly that the, the disciples were, were no longer able to do the, the, the ministry of the prayer and, and the word and also do the practical service to that large uh, of a body. And so they proposed a solution that the, that the congregation, that the, the community found um, uh, beneficial, and they created the office of deacon. Deacon is just a, a, a Greek word that means servant. Actually, it means, it means table waiter. And they, they, they created this office so that they could have people who would help on the practical side of the ministry so that the disciples, the, the apostles, wouldn't, uh, ha- wouldn't have to sacrifice the, the, the study and preparation time to lead uh, the, the community in, in doctrine and teaching and in, the, in those questions of faith. Stephen was selected as one of those early disciples. In fact, uh, we're told about him in, in Acts chapter 6, uh, in those first seven verses, it says in verse 5 uh, that he's the first one mentioned. They chose Stephen, and then Luke, the writer of this book, tells us, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That is, he was a man of recognized stature uh, as he followed Jesus. Now, that's where I want us to start with the life that he lived because Stephen was a living witness of spiritual authority. You see, spiritual authority, Jesus says when he gave us the, the Great Commission and said, go make disciples in all the world and baptize them, teach them to observe everything that, that I have commanded, and and, and, and lo, I am with you always. He gave us the authority that was granted to him. He delegated that to us so that in his authority, we could carry out 
the, min, the ministry and the mission of his work in the world. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. But when we get to the when, when we get to the seventh chapter, I mean, when we get to, in the sixth chapter, now verse eight, also again it says, and Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Um, verse nine, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Verse 10, but they were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. It's interesting because what happened is uh, there were enemies of the cause of Christ, and they set their sights on challenging Christianity. They had already executed Jesus. They had already made up lies to explain the absence of a body from an empty tomb. Now, as the church is beginning to sweep across the city, as people from everywhere that have come to Jerusalem, they're being drawn into Christianity. There were those of the synagogue who said in their minds that they would challenge Christianity. So what they did was they found one of the church members he wasn't one of the pastors, but he was one of the deacons. They found him, and they targeted him because he had a reputation. He had a profile, and they decided that we'll, we'll take him, we'll debate him, and when we humble him intellectually, we'll bring him to his knees. Well, they couldn't do it. They couldn't cope with him. In fact, we see the brilliance of Stephen because when he's arrested on the basis of false charges— uh, there's, the parallel here is fascinating because, because Stephen is arrested and taken um, to the place of execution basically in a very similar process to Jesus himself. The charges were validated by false witnesses and, and carried out without any true uh, implementation of justice. But they, they decide that they're going to bring him to his knees. We're going to find out that they were successful in bringing him to his knees, but, but not in submission to them in a whole different way. Chapter 7 is essentially Stephen's defense. They have brought him on charges uh, before the Sanhedrin, and the, the first verse of chapter 7, the high priest said, are these things so? Meaning, are these charges that have been made against you true? And Stephen, in the entire chapter 7, essentially, gives this remarkable defense that traces the, the sins of the Jews all the way through the Old Testament and brings them right to this moment, making them guilty of the death of the Messiah. It's a powerful intellectual uh, argument that he makes here. Now, we're going we're gonna to skip past that, but you should totally read uh, Acts chapter 7. But we're going to pick up in, in verse 54. Now, when they had heard this, meaning they heard this powerful presentation by Stephen about who Jesus was and about the guilt of the Jews as they, uh, as, as they executed him. Now, when they heard this, they were infuriated and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. I want to talk to you about this living witness of spiritual authority. And first of all, his stature. We've already mentioned that. From his selection as a deacon in chapter 6 to his selection by the opponents as a target of their opposition, this was a man who was full of God's grace and God's power. He had a public reputation as a godly man. But he says he was also, three times it tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. That is, he was a visible example of the crucified life. I've been crucified with Christ, and yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Stephen is an example of that. We saw in chapter 6, he was chosen by the apostles for his well-known Christian walk. He was chosen by God for his public usefulness to the cause. And in verse 10 of that chapter, we saw that he was chosen by his enemies as a target for attack, thinking that they could embarrass the cause of Christ by intellectually defeating Stephen in debate. Well, what was his secret? In verse 56, well, let's, let's go back. In verse 54, I want, I want to be sure you get the picture. He has delivered this powerful survey of the Old Testament. And it says, when they heard this, they were infuriated and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Now, those words in, in Greek are, are significant words. The word infuriated means literally they were outside their minds and they began gnashing their teeth. The picture here is of a pack of rabid dogs. They've lost all sense. They've lost all focus. They, they're, they're not even aware of what they're doing, but they are gnashing their teeth. They are frothing at the mouth. They are bloodthirsty. It is a picture of what happens when, and frankly, Frankly, this is what we're going to see. The anger toward Christians in our generation comes from the same source when unrighteousness cannot abide the presentation of truth and the living out of righteousness. Now, they, they can't stand it. And, and there's not reasoned debate. There's not negotiation. There's not coming to some sort of understanding. We've got a lot of people who go, well, hey, can't we just all sit down and talk? No, you can't talk to rabid dogs. And that's what's happening here. They're gnashing their teeth, frothing at the mouth. They're, they're becoming animal-like. But I want you to see something about, about Stephen. In the middle of that, I mean, he's in the middle of a mob. He's surrounded by people who are losing their minds. And it says, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Think about that. In the middle of what must have been utter craziness, he looks up. Now, the language is a little bit unclear here. I don't know if... if Stephen had walked with Jesus so well that he could picture him in his mind's eye standing at the right hand of the throne of the Father and the glory of, the God's, uh, 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 the glory of God seated on the throne, filling that space. But I think the language pr probably implies that it wasn't just his mind's eye. I think in the middle of what's about to be the first 
actual martyr for the faith, I think the Father, seated on his throne, summoned angels and said, pull back the curtains. Let him see. Let him see that I'm still on my throne. Let him see that the Jesus he follows is standing at the right hand of the throne in a place of authority and power. Let him see that he's not out there by himself. He's not facing this on his own. It's not his strength that will be there. Let him see. And he looks up and he sees it. And he actually, he actually says it. He says it out loud. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What was his secret? His secret was he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which meant he could see things that the rabid dogs around him couldn't see. He knew Christ so well that the invisible world became visible for him. The mob and the Sanhedrin faded into the shadows while the presence of Christ commanded his entire attention. He was a living witness of spiritual authority. But he's about to show us what it means to be a dying witness of personal conviction. You see, look at what happens here. Verse 57, this is their response when he says, I see the Lord. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. I want you to notice his composure. In the middle of this animal-like mob action of hellish fury, he is controlled, he is peaceful, he is the absolute master of his situation. It's interesting. Notice, what, notice the language here. It says, but they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. Don't miss that. See, think about this. Use your sanctified imagination. They shouted. What, what is a common strategy in our generation today when a speaker is on a college campus and, and the students don't want to hear him? They shout him down. So they started to shout, but then they covered their ears. Now, this is what's weird because they, then they rushed on him. Listen, you don't run with your hands on your ears, okay? That is a patently, uh, you know, hard way to do that. That's not normal. As they rushed him, they covered their ears. Why? Because the conviction of the presence of the Spirit of God in the heart and the life and the words of a godly man speaking the truth, they had to cover their ears because they couldn't stand to hear what it was he was saying. He had just outlined the entire Old Testament to prove that they were guilty of killing their Messiah. He had just said, I've seen the heaven opened up and there's the Lord seated, uh, standing at the right hand of the throne. They couldn't listen to that. And so they covered their ears and they rushed him. But look at his confidence. It said they, they had driven him out of the city. And they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They took him 
outside of the city and they began to stone him. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Even in the midst of stoning, his confidence tells us that his focus remained fixed on Christ because death was not the final part of his story. You see, we have to go back to what Jesus told his original disciples and by extension what he tells us. He says, don't fear people that that can only threaten to take your physical life. I mean, the bottom line is, that's never going to be a, a threat to us because the reality is, if we live the crucified life, if we've been crucified with Christ, we died to ourselves a very long time ago. Stephen wasn't intimidated by the threat of death because he knew that there's a throne room and there's a Lord and that's where he's going to be. We need to walk with Jesus so closely that the fear of death disappears from our lives. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm afraid of pain. I get that. But death is nothing to us. Well, sure, easy for you to say, you're not dying. Yes, I am. Every single day, I die a little bit more. And so do you. Our days are numbered. Whether we die by persecution, by martyrdom, or we die in our beds, death is on its way. The only question for us is, have you dealt with that issue? Have you secured a life that is not held captive by the threat of death? He had a composure in the middle of that moment that shows who was in charge of the situation. And he says, Lord, receive my spirit. He knew he was about to die, but he also knew he was about to meet Jesus face to face. But then it says in verse 60, then he fell on his knees this is where I want you to see his Christ-likeness. He fell on his knees. They did eventually drive him to his knees, but not in submission to them. He was on his knees in submission to somebody else. Lord, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The best evidence of the successful completion of God's work for an intention in Stephen was that he died with the mind of Christ. See, I, I, I've got to get there. I've got to get to that place. Because with the last breath that he exhaled, he said, Lord, show mercy to these people. That is a Christ-likeness that is almost impossible for me to fathom. But see... Stephen figured out something. He knew something that, that I'm, I'm fighting to know. I know it intellectually, but I'm fighting to know it personally and, and emotionally in my soul. And that is that there is an enemy. But the enemy is the one who motivates these people. The enemy is not the actual people themselves. 
The people, you know, have, have, you, have you noticed lately how bizarre it is? Some of the people, like in the transgender movement right now, whether it's on Instagram or, or, or wherever you might see it, TikTok or, or wherever, have you seen these 40-year-old men and they're dressed like a six-year-old little girl? I mean, I, it's bizarre because, because the only conclusion I can come to is that they, they want to undermine and tear down the Judeo-Christian worldview that has been the foundation of Western civilization now for 2,000 years, but they're not offering a replacement that's rational or reasonable. I mean, it, it's, they're, not, they're not offering a, a better vision. It's just anarchy and absurdity. And yet, Stephen pushes me to the conclusion that that man dressed like a little girl promoting the most heinous positions of, uh, of our culture, he's a prisoner of war. He's a victim of an enemy that has lied to him. And he's bought the lies. He's believed the falsehood. He's received and accepted the deceit. But he's not my enemy. The enemy behind him is my enemy. Here is Stephen being executed by a lawless mob of rabid dogs. And yet he reflects Jesus by saying, Lord... They don't understand. They've bought the lie. They've been lied to, and they don't, they can't distinguish the lie from the truth. So show them mercy. Man, I, I, I've, I've got to get there. This, this story, let me tell you where this takes me. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You do realize that that prayer was answered right here before our eyes. Go up uh, to the previous verse. Verse, verse 58. The, the, the crowd is stoning Stephen, and it says, And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, let me tell you what really chaps me about this story is you've got these, these ruffians who are out there actually throwing the stones. But you know, the people that I, the people that I hate in this story are not the ruffians throwing the stones. They're the self-righteous leaders who are lending credibility to the mob's actions by their presence. Oh, they wouldn't get their hands dirty. Paul, Saul didn't pick up a stone, but he's there as a Pharisee, and he says, oh, just lay your cloaks right here. I'll watch them. He's lending credibility to this mob action. Those are the ones really guilty. It says that Stephen said, Lord, show mercy. 
And then he fell asleep. Do you know two chapters later in Acts chapter 9, we find this same Saul, and he is, has become something of a rabid dog himself. And he is all charged up, and he is searching out Christians, dragging them from their homes so that they can be arrested and punished for following this, this man, Jesus. And on the way to Damascus, he has an encounter with that same Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing to my people? Why are you fighting me on this? And Saul met Jesus. Over the course of the next several years, he was discipled. He became a teacher of the Bible. He took all of that training of, the, of his Pharisee education, understanding the, the, the Old Testament. And he went back and he, and he saw the Old Testament in a whole new light. And he began to explain how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, how Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And Paul became a great Bible teacher. In fact, he eventually became what we call the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, at the end of Paul's life, he writes a letter to Timothy and he says, he says listen, I, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. But now there is in heaven laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It's his swan song. He knows that he's about to be executed. In fact, I've been to the place outside the old city walls of, of ancient Rome. You see, crucifixion was a Roman means of execution, but not for Roman citizens. Roman citizens couldn't be executed, and they, had to be, or they couldn't be crucified, and they had to be executed in private and not in public. Paul was a Roman citizen, and so there is a place, which is almost certainly the place where he was executed. It tells us in this passage that when, when Stephen prayed that last prayer, it says that he prayed that prayer with a loud voice, meaning that I'm sure Paul, from his vantage point, called Saul in that story, I'm sure he heard that prayer. Now, using my sanctified imagination, I find myself standing in Rome at the place where Paul was executed, thinking to myself, as Paul was brought to the post where they would lay down his, his head on that post, just before the blade of the executioner was about to fall on the back of that old apostle's neck, I wonder if he didn't whisper a prayer. Lord, this executioner, show him mercy. He doesn't understand what he's doing. He's accepted the lie. He swallowed the deception. Lord, don't, don't blame him. The blade fell on that neck. The head lays to the side of that post. And Paul instantly opens his eyes, I'm sure, to see Jesus. But after the initial expression of gratitude, in my mind, Jesus says, Paul, Paul, come here. There's somebody that's been waiting to meet you. 
And he turns and he says, I want you to meet your brother Stephen. And in my mind, Paul, he says, Stephen, I'm so sorry. And Stephen says, Paul, Paul, it's okay. I was given the privilege of being the first person to give the last full measure of my life for the Lord that I love. And I prayed for you, and God gave me you as a trophy, as a recipient of mercy. And everything that you did, Paul, the churches that you planted, the books that you wrote, the letters that you delivered, the mentor, the, the, the young men that you mentored, those are all credited to me. I get to have that, my ministry. It was through you. Because I prayed for grace and you came to Jesus and you did remarkable things. That's how we get to the place of praying for our enemies because they're not really our enemies. And in any given person, that criticizes you, that is hateful to you, that, 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 that hates the gospel, that hates the word of God, that hates uh, the church, to any person that we pray for, there's a chance that they become a follower of Jesus and they make a huge difference for Jesus Christ. That's how we get to the place of praying a dangerous prayer. Lord, this enemy of mine Show him mercy. That's where we start this series. I don't know when persecution will come. I don't know if in our generation the church will once again be scattered. But I do know that in that just like the first century if we face persecution and the church is scattered in our generation, the gospel will be spread and the world will be turned upside down. You might say, well, Pastor, I'm, I, I, the world's going to come to an end. It's going to all be chaotic and, and crazy. I mean, I mean, what's the fight here? I'll tell you what the fight is. The world is going to be chaotic and crazy. There's going to be a time of tribulation. There's going to be devastation. Sin will rule for a time. But let me tell you something. It's not going to happen on my watch. We will not be a church that hides behind closed doors, that hunkers down and says, let's just do our own little thing here and we'll let the world go to hell in a handbasket. 
some of the world, some of the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket, but that will be after Jesus says the church has completed what I called her to do. I'm going to take her out until I finish the rest of the story. But I'm telling you, as long as we're here, we are going to be in the battle. We are going to be fighting the decay. We are going to be holding off the darkness because we are salt and light. And that is why we are left here. It is not time for our rest. It is not time for us to go to heaven. It is not time for us to to leave the battle. It is time for us to engage because there is an enemy who is motivating a whole bunch of prisoners of war. And we are in the business of freeing captives and conquering the powers that be. And so we learn to pray for our enemies because they need Jesus. But who knows? Whatever price we have to pay when our enemies are stolen away from their POW camps and brought to liberation in Jesus Christ Who knows but that our sacrifice won't do more through them than anything we ever dreamed. Stephen is one of my heroes. I can only aspire to be like Stephen. But I'll tell you this. Until Jesus calls me home, by death or by rapture, I will be about the task of turning the world upside down. We will protect our children. We will defend the unborn. We will pray for the persecuted church around the world because we understand that when the church becomes desperate enough to pray, the dangerous God shows up and he makes things different if you don't know Jesus Christ that's the starting place you must believe what's true and come to Christ lay down your fractured broken life and receive the wholeness of the life that he has to give you See, this phrase, the crucified life, it sounds like a life of suffering. And it can be to some degree. But the crucified life is really life eternal lived out in this broken world right now. See, we don't wait to get to heaven before we experience heavenly life. It comes to us right now and it changes the way we function. So much so that we can even pray for our enemies. Our pastors are going to be right here. We won't, we won't be here long, but you come and, and meet them. They'll pray with you. They'll share with you about Jesus. They'll make an appointment when you have more time that we can talk. Whatever it is we need to do, we're going to do that right now. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much. In this moment, there is a real sense of your presence in this place. From the time of our worship through the opening of your word, we have sensed that you're among us. And so, Father, I pray right now 
that you would compel us to own our status as outsiders. That we would be content that our home is not in this life and not in this land. Our home is where the throne is, where the master is. Father, draw us there. Give us strength and courage. Help us to live well as representatives of the kingdom and help us to die well as examples of truth and grace and mercy. Father, in these moments, make yourself unmistakably known to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me while we sing.